Welcome to Twill, the Week in Health Law, the constitutional crisis podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on May 15th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, who regularly threatens our guests that he will release tapes of our conversations, is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. I've just been sitting in the everlasting rain in central Indiana grading exams. You've been you've been off around the world again? Yes, I did a talk uh, called The Automated Public Sphere in Berlin, and then did some other stuff on algorithmic accountability in law, but unfortunately came back with a bit of a cold flu, so um, that's the perils of international travel, I guess. It's Medicaid and lozenges today, then. Yes. Well, probably <laughs> as, our, as our title. <laughs> we welcome Dr. Laura Katz Olson, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. There she teaches U.S. healthcare policies and the American presidency, among other courses, and directs the department's uh, graduate program. She's a prolific scholar, uh, publishing widely in the field of aging, healthcare and women's studies, Medicare, Medicaid, long-term care of the elderly, pension, social security, and problems experienced by older women. Uh, by my count, uh, she's now up to nine books including uh, The Politics of Medicaid, which was Columbia University Press, Press in 2010, and her latest book, Elder Care Journey, A View from the Front Lines, a SUNY Press book in 2016. Uh, great welcome to the pod, Laura. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you. So let's begin with Medicaid while we still have it. Over 50 years since its passage, uh, Medicaid may now be facing an existential moment. Rather than expanded Medicaid continuing as a key building block towards universal health care, block-granted Medicaid may emerge under Trump care as a mere shadow of its former self. So how do you reflect on what's going on with Medicaid? Um, and in particular, I suppose the repealers narrative um, that Medicaid is welfare and because it's welfare, only the deserving poor should qualify for it. Medicaid, as dire as this seems, has always had a very uh, contentious relationship uh, between the federal government and, and the states. Um, uh, for example, under President Reagan, uh, they threatened to cut it and to uh, block grant it. Uh, under 1994, under Clinton, the Republican Congress threatened to block grant it and cut it substantially. So this is not an unusual kind of uh, threat. Uh, and yet, interestingly enough, with all of these threats, Medicaid not only has managed to survive, but to grow uh, quite increasingly every single year. So this is really not out of the ordinary what's going on. Uh, and uh, because of the role that Medicaid plays uh, in caring for the uh, working poor, and particularly the role it plays for taking care of uh, the elderly uh, in nursing homes and increasingly in at-home care, I would doubt that these dire cuts will actually happen. But we will see the cuts to expansion, you think? I don't think that we will see the cuts to expansion either in the uh, final bill. Uh, many of the uh, governors uh, are now dependent on the Medicaid expansion. Uh, the hospitals in particular are uh, reaping in quite substantial money from the expansion. The 
the drug companies are uh, benefiting from it. Uh, uh, if we caught the Medicaid uh, expansion, it would have, I think, dire effects on state governments and on many of the uh, stakeholders. So I suspect, given its long history of uh, the federal government always attempting to cut it and hand it over to the states, uh, I suspect this is not going to happen. Well, I think you're the first guest we've had on the show since um, November, whose glass has been half full. <laughs> yes, maybe we've got a turning point. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting because I think uh, Medicaid itself is a glass half full. And I always ask the question uh, when I when I think a bit about Medicaid, is it better than nothing? In some ways, uh, it is better than nothing for the uh, recipients, and it may be better than nothing, certainly for the uh, some of the stakeholders. But the question is, because of the growing costs, is it better than nothing for the uh, government, for the taxpayers? You know, thinking about the long-term perspective here, you know, and I think that was really nicely evoked by your response to Nick's question. And I wanted to bring it in to transition to a discussion of, of elder care. And, you know, given that you've been such a prolific scholar, Laura, you know, I was wondering um, how your perspective has evolved between your 2003 book, The Not-So-Golden Years, colon, Caregiving the Frail Elderly and the Long-Term Care Establishment, and your most recent book called Elder Care Journey. Is your fundamental theoretical orientation the same? Or would you say that, there, that things have changed fundamentally that have uh, led you to or have a very different approach uh, in the past 15 years or so? I don't think my general perspective has changed, but I think my experience with elder care has uh, added depth to my understanding, emotional depth in particular. Um, I also think that my experience in taking care of my own mother uh, made me understand a lot of issues much better. Uh, for example, I was always a big fan of uh, home and community-based care, which is taking care of the elderly at home. Uh, some of them, some scholars call that aging in place. Uh, and you hear a lot of rhetoric about rebalancing uh, from nursing homes to home care. But in my own experience with my mother, I realized that if you are frail enough to need nursing home care, you are going to need more home care than one most caregivers could provide and that uh, Medicaid is willing to offer. For example, I found that uh, Medicaid in Florida and Medicaid in Pennsylvania, despite my mother's frailty and inability to live on her own, were only willing to give her 10 hours of care a week. So th that was one place that my perspective uh, evolved. That is such an interesting area of evolution. And it actually just reminds me of something that's very topical um, this week in the British election. Um, Theresa May, the conservative prime minister, announced a platform that was about giving people f time off to take care of elderly relatives. And rather than sort of celebrating that as family medical leave, a lot of folks in the Labor Party, SNP, even Lib Dems were saying, wait a second, you're just trying to shift the burden of caregiving from the state to the family. You've been cutting you know, a lot of forms of care in Britain. And this is, you know, rather, rather than celebrating this, we should really suspect this as a sort of shifting of labor. And I'm wondering, was that your experience too? I mean, is your sense that essentially many of the big policy innovations or, or touted policy innovations that seem to be uh, or that are marketed as helping make elder care more humane ultimately uh, do that on the backs of caregivers and, and shift labor and responsibility to them? 
think that's a great point. Uh, one of the uh, things that uh, worries me is how much uh, effort or attention policy-wise is paid to training caregivers, um, uh, making them feel better. But there is very, very little uh, financial input into giving caregivers uh, paid hours. And most of the effort is on saving costs. And what I discovered, and I, I knew it before I went into it, but when I realized it was going to be me, as opposed to this generalized caregiver, um, that most of the policy now is to save costs by putting more uh, caregiving on the backs of the caregivers. And I think that if, you know, for example, if they cut Medicaid, uh, what that would mean is that they would have to cut long-term care. And certainly that would give the 40 million caregivers uh, much more uh, effort on their part in caring for their loved ones. That doesn't seem sympathetic to our changes in demographics, where you would expect uh, more uh, non-family uh, caregiving resources to be made available. Though, of course, that probably does explain why there's this heightened interest in cutting Medicaid, because those demographics are going to involve the uh, the federal government in, in more and more expenditures. Uh, that's one of the reasons that uh, long-term care was kept, uh, for the most part, out of the Affordable Care Act. President Obama had uh, promised to keep the uh, Affordable Care Act under a certain amount of money, and there was no way they were going to be able to add uh, long-term care. It would have just broken that uh, the bank. I would like to go back just a little bit to some of your uh, problems with the existing uh, Medicaid system, in addition to, to the one that you just developed there. Because, uh, yes, we know Medicaid is the sort of the, the poorer state-run brother to, to Medicare, but it does seem to have had considerable positive effects in many states, massively uh, positive effects in, in some of them since expansion. And there's also been talk that maybe Medicaid for all rather than Medicare for all might be a way of starting the, the next progression towards universality. But if Medicaid really isn't that good... Is that a is that a uh, an approach that you would caution against? I would definitely cautious against it. Uh, for, for Medicaid, for example, in the first place. It's a very demeaning process. Um, and I could say that uh, from my readings and from my academic work, but having gone through it with my mother, it is truly demeaning. Um, the paperwork, the documentation that you need, uh, the verifications, the re-verifications, the proof of citizenship, income tests, asset tests, birth certificates. Um, it makes it a very, very complicated, uh, time-consuming process uh, that uh, doesn't really give the kind of uh, access that uh, the poor or the working poor should have. But even more important, and this is not really discussed as much as it should, um, Medicaid really doesn't give adequate access to uh, physicians, particularly specialists. Um, the fees are very low. We have a shortage of doctors, and physicians tend to take uh, the uh, Medicare patients over Medicaid patients and certainly commercial patients, paying patients over Medicaid patients. Uh, and that's a real problem. So the uh, poor end up uh, in clinics and public hospitals. And I don't think that is uh, it's really what we see now is a two-class medicine system. And I wouldn't want to perpetuate that. Yeah, I do think that is a really deep concern here. And I 
I mean, I wonder sometimes if the ultimate goal of some of the folks trying to even dismantle Medicaid is to create a three-class system, you know, where you'd have just people who are the uninsured. And, um, you know, and, and I think that the problems with Medicaid just keep surfacing in terms of lack of provider availability. Um, I'm wondering if you could discuss in terms of uh, humanizing the narrative. Um, we, we had Rebecca Dresser on recently, um, and she discussed uh, her experience going from uh, someone researching human subjects research to someone who, and researching medical ethics to being a patient and experiencing these shortcomings. Could you describe some of the shortcomings of the elder care system with respect to your mother and you know how that, if there are any approaches that seem reasonable to solving them, or do you think that these shortcomings are so deeply ingrained in the system that it'll be very, very difficult to solve? Well, I, I think the shortcomings, I can give you uh, some examples of the uh, shortcomings, but I think they're really ingrained in the system. And the biggest problem we have is uh, the delivery system. For example, you have your pl- publicly traded companies that their their goal is to uh, give money to their shareholders and elder care is just not even uh, an important goal to them but even worse we've now had a movement towards uh, private equity firms buying up uh, nursing homes uh, it's a very uh, private i don't know if you know much about private equity firms but oh, yes. uh, what they like is a predictable huge cash flow which nursing homes have steady clientele uh so the healthcare in general but nursing homes in particular is uh, now uh, something that they want to do and even worse than publicly traded companies their goal is outsized profits to basically strip the homes of everything they can including the the real estate and then to uh, turn it over and sell it in five years and the studies show that uh, publicly traded companies have the worst care but private equity companies even have uh, more uh, dire uh, problems uh, in quality so i think structurally the delivery system for elder care has problems and if you want to go to the home care that's uh, even worse uh because there's isolated basically and what you have is um people being cared for in their home and nobody really watching the store. Um, I have to say that uh, the home care that my mother got was uh, so dismal, even I was surprised and I've studied it for years. Oh, there's so many things I want to connect to on that. And I I wanted to just start by saying that um, I'm going to try to link to in the show notes, a description of uh, a large private equity firm that had a strategy in Florida of essentially taking over a nursing home, but then selling, spinning off the home itself self only having control of the real estate and trying to establish that as a legal shield against liability. And I teach it in my healthcare policy class every year, this this case, because it goes to exactly the point you were making, Laura, about they just want the rent. And so they, they raise the rents, but then if there was bad care or if someone had you know died on their watch, they would be shielded because they'd say, oh, we're just a landowner. We're not the home itself. Right. And then, and then there's no money in the... If somebody sues the operating uh, portion, there's no money there, yes, even if they're yeah. successful. No, it's really troubling. And um, it's one of those things where I can bring in corporate law and piercing the corporate veil into my uh, health law class. But I also wanted to go to the home health aids issue because, you know, this is becoming such a hot issue in terms of both False Claims Act liability, where there are some entities out there that are say that they're providing licensed care, but in fact, they're not. 
And I'm just wondering, do you have a sense that the reason for bad care, is it because of a lack of supervision, a lack of proper training, a lack of incentives, uh, the fragmentation? Do you have a, a sense of that from your experience or from your uh, knowledge of the literature? Well, I think it's all of that, but I think more fundamentally, it's the ownership. What, what you find, for example, is uh, way over half of all home care money comes from Medicaid and Medicare, mostly Medicare. Uh, yet it's all c commercial for profit, uh, which uh, focuses really on the needs of the uh, owners and not the needs of the the people. Um, watching what go what watching what went on with my mother was just uh, eye opening for me. I mean, in one case, the nurse came and used my mother's supplies. My mother was the kind of person who always had band aids and things. And when I asked her why she was doing that, she said that the home agency, home care agency, did give her sufficient uh, supplies. I think it's the structure of the delivery system, including the home care. Sort of a theme of our talk today, yes. Uh, sort of shifting labor to and uh, costs onto the client slash patient as opposed to bearing them themselves, yeah. So I wonder, given your experiences um, looking after your mom and everything, are there specific pieces in the Medicaid process, the bureaucratic pieces that you talk about, that you think could be streamlined and relatively easily streamlined. So sort of um, automatic sort of enrollments and, and things like that, ways of, of cutting out the paperwork for, for, for you as a caregiver or, or uh, anyone else. Anything that sort of immediately came to mind where you just looked at a process that you were experiencing and going, there is absolutely no reason why it has to be done this way when there is a shortcut that is so obvious. Well, it's a great question. The reason that there's all of these uh, documentation uh, bureaucratic hurdles and problems is the fact that they, the government is trying to make sure that nobody is cheating the system. It doesn't matter if you're someone like my mother who was 90, you know, at the time she was like 91 years old and had no assets and her only income was social security. They wanted to make sure she wasn't cheating the system. And if you short circuit any of the bureaucratic hurdles, you would have to go under the assumption that people are entitled to uh, care, uh, that they aren't uh, poor people who are trying to take advantage of uh, the taxpayers and, and other people. Uh, so it would, it would take a very big value change. Uh, it'd be easy to get rid of the hurdles if you believe that people were entitled to the services. And of course, uh, universality uh, would get you there, right? If every if everyone is entitled to this uh, this healthcare, then you don't have to have the bureaucrats uh, trying to to weed out the uh, the welfare cheats. Yeah, and you know the, the experience that I had wasn't just simply that my mother had to document everything she got and everything they gave her, but recertification was constant. I mean, every time I turned around, there was more documentation, and some of the documentation was very difficult to get because, um, you know, my mother was uh, not capable, she was blind at that point, not capable of getting anything for herself. Um, so that was very, that was uh, something that was very eye-opening uh, for me. Um, another eye-opening thing was the helplines. I've, I've learned that uh, the call centers or helplines are really very, um, I don't know how to put this, but demanding. Uh, no matter what you, whether it's Social Security or Medicare or anything that you trying to get or, or getting care for, you know, 
home care. There's always long waiting periods on the lines, uh, security constraints, uh, the robot-like uh, consumer representatives who don't know anything about the aging policy or your particular case. That was one of the more frustrating aspects of my uh, experience. Uh, I spent many, many, many hours on the phone and still do. And it's a very strange process too. I mean, I, having been a caregiver myself, I mean, I've had that very frustrating experience of going from person to person at an agency or at the hospital or at the insurance company, none of whom seem to have any sort of power to resolve the situation. And you know, none of whom seem to be able to offer any sort of like binding assurance that the problem has been addressed. Um, and, and I also find that that, that problem even goes into the, the caregiving process itself. I think, you know, in your, your chapter uh, from rehabilitation to debilitation um, was a really troubling and, and, and sad picture of, you know, how even those who are you know, sworn to under the Hippocratic Oath and under other professional obligations to take care of, of their patients, you know, may have a very difficult time or their residents, you know, in the case of uh, nursing homes may have a very difficult time just given all of the constraints they're hemmed in by. One of the more interesting things for me was, uh, you know, the, 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 the touted rules and regulations at nursing homes is, is uh, even though they're, they're certainly not very strong, I was very surprised how they were just flouted by the nursing homes. When I got the records, for example, of my mother's stay, they had nothing to do with the reality of the experience. The caseworkers just made things up. Wow. The care was so bad and it was documented that my mother could uh, see, that my mother watched television. My mother was legal, you know, legally blind at that point. They said she was uh, capable of uh, getting better through rehab. And then I was told that uh, she was a hopeless case. So I was really surprised by how the nursing homes did not take any of the rules or regulations seriously at all. Well, we certainly know that federal and state fraud and abuse people have been particularly keen to look at uh, low-quality care in nursing homes. Well, you know, it's, it, it's sort of uh, interesting how the uh, even the uh, inspectors, uh, they'll, they'll, you know, put something down like something causes minimal harm or potential for harm. And one example is that the food is not nutritional or at the right temperature. And they'll say that's minimal harm. Uh, for my mother, she didn't get any protein and she was protein deprived and, and became very sick. So I wouldn't call that minimum harm. They called minimal harm when they ignored, when the nursing home ignored that patients had to go to the bathroom. This is documented by the inspectors and they say this is minimal harm. Well, when they don't take people to the bathroom and they don't walk them, they lose their ability to walk. So even the inspectors in the inspection system, I think, uh, need, need to have a lot to uh, desire with them. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that was another part of your book that was really um, very very difficult to read, and but also something I could sympathize with my own mother's experience in a rehab facility, and I think many of our listeners could sympathize with. We actually had a conversation with Allison Hoffman a few months ago on what would a better long term care system look like. But part of the pressure is just because of the near universal experience of you know, and, and even down to things like you mentioned in the book, the really terrible food, you know, soggy bananas, or you know, just and and it just seems seems as though at a stage in life where one would want to see the most sort of care and attention lavished on someone, instead there's a real warehousing mentality and a sort of check the box uh, minimum ethic applied to it. Yeah, and, and I, I think that uh, when we think of soggy food, 
uh, an unappetizing food, we say, you know, isn't that terrible? But actually, it could be a health issue. Um, and that's a medical issue of people aren't getting proper nutrition. And I, and I think we make the inspectors and uh, the inspection system makes light of that kind of thing as, oh, well, it's not tasty. It's much more serious than that in my experience. I also get the impression that uh, there are other parts of the legal system that you believe uh, cause something of a pall over <laughs> long-term care and, and nursing homes and, and caring as you've experienced it. Um, I, I get the impression you're, no, you're not a big fan of HIPAA. Yes, and uh, the purpose of HIPAA is to protect our confidentiality for patients and safeguard them, uh, safeguard their rights, and I certainly understand that. Um, but in reality, what it turns out for a caregiver is that even in emergencies, they can't take care of business. Um, when you have all these documentation needs that we talked about earlier, but you can't get the documents because of uh, the HIPAA privacy laws. Um, everywhere I turned, I ran into roadblocks because of uh, the HIPAA laws. And I think that it needs to be uh, at least uh, changed to revised to some extent to make long distance caregiving uh, a little easier. Of course, the, the, the HIPAA privacy uh, rule specifically uh, permits covered entities to share information with caregivers, um, even if the patient is not present or is not competent, uh, it tends to give the healthcare providers a lot of discretion based on their professional judgment. The practical question or questions, I guess, are one, is that maybe not particularly well known? Or two, is there a, a, a tendency to, to use this as an excuse to, uh, to further push the caregiver away from from caring for the patient? Well, I think that's a good question. The problem is not so much that caregivers can't do what they need to do. It's that they need documentation, i.e. a power of attorney, every time they want to do something. And if you're dealing with uh, 20 different agencies or uh, different hospitals, or you're dealing with, uh, like in my, my mother's Humana Medicare, uh, just, just so many agencies, in so many places uh, and so many problems and so many emergencies that I found myself having to fax my uh, durable power of attorney document everywhere constantly. Um, so it's not that I don't, didn't have permission, it's that I had to get individual permission for each thing I had to do. Uh, and in an emergency, that is really very difficult. And I wanted to also just transition from that point to a, a larger one, I guess, which is, I remember at one point in the book, you describe how Pennsylvania state law allows the healthcare provider to charge you $1 per page oh, for yeah. medical records, which I just, you know, it's just so frustrating. And it reminds me, though, of my own mother's case where, you know, she she could get literally hundreds of pages on CD-ROM from MGH when she was going there. And it just is such a stark demonstration of how regional variation, institutional variation can so fundamentally alter someone's experience. And, and you see that also in your book, right? Because you, you have the two very bad nursing homes and then the move to Graysdale. And I'm wondering if you might be able, you know, because I don't want this episode to be totally depressing to our <laughs> listeners. You know? I, 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 during, when I teach long-term care, actually, I, I, I show a little video of, of something called green nursing homes uh, yes. from uh, because I think that's a really interesting step. So I'm wondering if you could describe Graysdale and how that uh, was just a totally different experience. Yeah, well, 
like, I wouldn't say it was a totally different experience. Uh, and I have to say it's gone downhill since I've uh, written the book. It, Graysdale was running into millions and millions of dollars of deficits every year. And they've been attempting to uh, basically uh, remedy that. And so it's actually had some, some problems since then. But one of the benefits of uh, the county nursing home is that uh, they're unionized and the workers pays pay is much better. Obviously, it's not great. Uh, caregivers are underpaid and overworked. And that is true at Graysdale as well. But the pay is much better than at other nursing homes, uh, private nursing homes. It's also a community place. And what I discovered is that many of the people there being cared for their own children work at Graysdale or their nieces and nephews work at Graysdale. Uh, in one case recently, I found a woman who uh, she herself worked at Graysdale in the early years and now she's being cared for. So there's a very strong sense of, of community and caring that I didn't find in the other nursing homes. So I, I, it's a good enough place. I think there's a lot that could be improved as well. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Olson. Uh, a great privilege having you on the show, Laura, and thank you for uh, sharing such uh, personal stories and reflections on a increasingly difficult area. Yeah, it was my pleasure, and thank you for having me. Well, we post our show notes at twill.com. I'm at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank? I'm at Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us, and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Mm-hmm.